Hello, everyone. This is your host, Brennan Catulli of the Mental Insights Podcast, and we are here today for episode number 21 of the Mental Insights Podcast with Jennifer Whitaker. Jennifer is an empowerment strategist who tries to help navigate her clients through anger, fear, through these overwhelming emotions that you may have succumbed to due to any type of experience, whether it be an abuse or trauma experience. Jennifer is able to lead others through these issues due to her own personal experience through her youth. Jennifer faced trauma and abuse throughout her initial childhood, even when she was in the womb of her mother. Jennifer experienced abuse, whether it was emotional, social, and it caused direct harm to the way that she behaved, the way that she thought about herself throughout much of her following years. Jennifer provides such great insights into the steps that you can make to move forward within your life and to offer some resources that are really up and coming and providing many people some dramatic changes within their own life. It was such a pleasure to speak with Jennifer in this episode, and I hope you all gain some valuable insights into your own experiences and some forward steps that you can make in your life today. So here we are with Jennifer Whitaker. I really look forward to this interview. Jennifer has a lot to share and we have a lot to uncover within mental health and how you can provide transformation within your own life through many different obstacles, many different routines that are available out there, many different resources that Jennifer is going to provide. So first and foremost, I think we'll speak about um, really how you came into terms of what really these self-development problems really offer and why people really want to improve themselves throughout their day, why people want to seek change within their life. And a lot of it can be due to a traumatic experience. It can be due to childhood trauma or an experience that you had in your past that necessarily you could not overcome or you can't necessarily find out the answer as to why. For yourself, Jennifer, what did you experience as a child, as an adult that caused you to try to understand more about human development and trying to see what you needed to improve upon yourself? Um, I, I don't remember when I actually became consciously aware that I was on this path for healing. Um, I have known in the background, just in the back of my mind, most of my life that something's just not right, something doesn't feel right, something's off. Um, and a little bit about my experience. Um, as a child, I grew up in a household where um, by today's standards, both of my parents would be considered abusive um, in very, very different ways. My mother was passive aggressive um, to the point that she would say things under her breath that only you could hear. And I don't know if you've ever been around that type of personality, but it's really, really exhausting. 
And whenever you finally do speak up and, you know, try to set a boundary and say, leave me alone or stop saying these things to me, then you become the ass because nobody heard everything leading up to it. And so it looks like you're the one making the scene. Um, so you put that personality with my father's personality and my dad, um, my dad is prone to losing his temper and going into rages and tantrums. So when you get this little biting comment under your breath, come it, you know, coming at you on a regular basis. Um, he would handle it as best he could. And then next thing we knew, sometimes it would be weeks, sometimes it would be months. Um, there would be a big blow up in the house and there was usually a fight. Um, there were often holes in the wall that I remember when I was a kid, um, you know, just from the blowouts and the fights. Um, so there was a lot of angry yelling, a lot of verbal abuse, a lot of financial manipulation in my household. Um, and it just, it set the scene for my sister and I, because there were only two children. Um, it set the scene for my sister and I to have to walk on eggshells around our parents. Um, we were conditioned to accept bad behavior from our parents. Therefore, we thought that was normal. And when we went out into the world, bad behavior from other people was our comfort zone. So that's what we were attracted to. And that's what we were drawn to. And you know, I get into high school and I found myself in dysfunctional relationship, after, you know, one after another. Um, and, it, and it did. It started when I was in high school, when I started dating. My high school boyfriend um, cheated on me. Um, he was verbally abusive. I was right back at him because, again, that was my comfort zone and that's what I knew. And I very quickly became jaded in life about relationships. Um, so I, I went through this phase where I, I was kind of a man hater. I thought men were crap. <laughs> and again, that w that came out of my abuse. That wasn't, that's not really how I feel. It was, um, I had that belief for a period of time because I was not ready or willing to look at the pain of my own experience. So I projected my own experience out onto the world and I unfairly projected it just at every man I encountered for a long time. Thank you for sharing that, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. And there's really two themes that I think that come out from this. And mm -hmm. you know, one being that when you have a, a traumatic experience, whether it be an abuse, whether it be a substance abuse of yourself, whether it be a mental health condition, they always seem to recur if you don't necessarily find say the answer you don't step in at the right time because it creates those kind of negative self-beliefs those negative doubts so it's kind of a recurring issue and the the other part is you know it kind of completely changes the way that you see abuse and the way that you see just living a normal life because like you said it ended up affecting you to then be abusive on other people so mm -hmm. it can not only recur throughout you know, one event, but it can lead to say five, and then it can as well make you be, uh, you know, your own proponent to really being the abusive, uh, you know, subject, and you could be bringing that upon someone else. So, mm -hmm. you know, how how can someone, if they do have one traumatic experience, you know, obviously it's hard to necessarily find the answer as to why someone else was doing it, but where can someone seek? acceptance and seek a way to necessarily 
you know, find uh, a way to not let one experience lead to the next or create that self-belief or self-doubt in them to act upon that aggressively towards someone else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's a whole lot going on in that question. <laughs> um, so first of all, um, you, you know, you, you referenced, you know, like our, our bad behaviors or maladaptive behaviors. And um, I hate to use the term bad, um, but they do come across as bad behaviors in general society. Um, so a lot of our behaviors, um, trying to think where to begin to answer this. Let me take a step back, first of all. You, you mentioned um, a few times a traumatic experience. Um, I do want to clarify what I mean when I talk about trauma, um, because I've done a lot of um, professional education in my life, and I have become a trauma specialist, and I specialize in understanding um, and working with um, childhood and intergenerational issues. And so when it comes to a traumatic event, you can have a hundred people live through the same event and you might get 15 to 20 of them, roughly 15 to 20% might experience the symptoms of complex post-traumatic stress. Um, so it has to do with your resilience. Um, and a lot of times it does have to do with um, childhood, you know, it goes back to childhood issues. And what happens in childhood is all mammals and birds experience this. Not so much reptiles, but mammals and birds. Um, we cannot survive without our parents. And it's hardwired into us um, as infants to attach to our parents or guardians or someone who's going to protect us because without that attachment, we cannot survive. And as an infant, we don't have a cognitive brain that's online. Our neocortex is not finished developing. Our hippocampus is not finished developing. Um, so it's somewhere around three years of age that the average person starts to have memory recall. Most people can't recall memories between, you know, prior to that. And that's because of how our brain develops. So prior to that, we're absorbing all kinds of information and we are learning left and right. We are just not doing it with our cognitive mind. It's our subconscious mind, our implicit memory that's absorbing all of that information. And implicit memory and subconscious memory is tissue memory, cellular memory. It is the memory of the body and it becomes a habit. So what happens in infancy as an infant, when we go into the fight, flight, or freeze response, um, if there's no adult that comes to us to comfort us um, and we don't get what we need, we start to compensate. So you might have an infant in the crib and we're, what, five decades into doctors telling us to let your babies cry it out and let them fall asleep. Um, turns out from a trauma perspective, that's terrible advice because it creates attachment issues between the infant and the child. And whenever you layer those early attachment issues with repeated trauma throughout somebody's life, it just grows and gets worse. Those are the people who are more likely to cope and create behaviors that they take into adulthood like I did. Um, because with an infant, again, it's hardwired into us. It's not a conscious choice. We just know instinctually that survival is more important than authenticity. So the child will always come to the conclusion that I'm not lovable, I'm worthless, I'm not good enough, I have to compensate in order to maintain the attachment to the parent, to my parents who are gonna protect me so I can survive because survival is that important. Um, so once we 
use these coping mechanisms in childhood and they work for us. So some of those coping mechanisms might include um, becoming the really good girl and becoming the nice person and the considerate person and you're always like taking care of your parents or doing exactly what they say, even though you might not want to because it keeps you in favor with your parents. And then we become the people pleaser or the yes man or the high achiever whenever we get into adulthood because it worked for us in childhood. And we don't realize that in adulthood, it's killing us. Um, in childhood, some kids turn to um, eating. Some kids will sneak candy. Some kids will sneak food. And that can change and adapt as the person grows to become a substance issue or an overeating issue or an obesity issue. And so it's knowing your past and looking at the truth of your past. A lot of us like to tell the story that we had a happy childhood and that, oh, my childhood was wonderful. And they're completely denying some incidents that could have you know, created some of these patterns. So it's looking at the truth of what really happened and going back and getting beyond the story you tell yourself. Because so many of us have stories we tell ourselves. Um, that good girl, that considerate girl, I was that person for so long and I created this story of how considerate I was of other people. And the truth is I was lying to myself. And it's not that I'm not considerate, don't get me wrong. I do have a streak of consideration in me. It's just I misused it because that consideration, um, I used it to um, help me mask whenever that shame from my earlyhood child, tra childhood trauma would come up. So let me give you an example of exactly what I mean by this. When I was a little kid, about five years old, um, I'm five, six, I'm not sure. I kind of go to five because I don't remember exactly when. Um, my father asked one night, where do you want to eat? And I said, Long John Silver's. Don't judge. It was, you know, 35, 40 years ago. It was 40 years ago at this point. Um, <laughs> and the food sat under the heat lamps. The, you know, chicken planks were chewy. They weren't good. It, it was really gross. But I had my little basket of extra crispies and my Heinz ketchup. I didn't care. I was happy. And we sat in the, at the booth right in front of the quintessential bay window of the Long John Silver's restaurant. And my dad started complaining about his food. It wasn't good. His food ended up hitting the window pane and landing in the windowsill. And he sat at the table and pouted the whole evening. Meanwhile, my mom, my sister, and I had to finish everything on our plate, regardless of how hungry we were or not. We had to finish everything. That was everybody's punishment because I chose this restaurant and the whole entire weekend, not just that evening or just in that moment, but the whole entire weekend, I heard how stupid and selfish I was for choosing that restaurant because my dad's food wasn't good. So it became my fault that his food wasn't good and it was my fault that he wouldn't eat that night. So his pouty response became my fault and my problem. So I very quickly learned, don't ever, ever, ever choose where somebody else eats. So I became the considerate person. So if you asked me when I was in my 20s or 30s, where would you like to go to lunch? My response probably would have been, I don't know, I'm not really hungry for anything in particular, Brendan. What do you think? What sounds good to you? Um, I'm not familiar with the restaurants on your side of town. Suggest something. And then you could narrow it down to your favorite restaurants. And if I picked, it was still your choice. Um, and that became a problem in relationships. It's caused arguments with, you know, in, in my relationship where I wasn't able to 
just order food in a snap because we were in a bind and it was like, hey, will you go order pizza? Everyone's hungry. I'm like, no, what does everybody want? I wanted to take orders. <laughs> and it, and it, was, it should have been a situation where I could have made an executive decision and said, everybody here can either eat cheese or pepperoni. It's good enough. But I couldn't do it because that was a trauma response coming up. And it really took me getting tired of my own crap um, and looking back over my life before I started to heal some of this stuff and recognize my own patterns. So you, you really do have to get to a point where you're sick of your own patterns and you have to look at the reality because for some people, they really truly are kind and considerate without the um, trauma in their background. For me, in many cases, that kindness and consideration was a trauma patterned response. Thank so you. Did, did that answer your question? <laughs> Definitely, yeah. That, okay. It, it opened up uh, a lot of different uh, perceptions that I have just now that mm -hmm. I'm starting to see a lot of like, because the, the trauma-driven responses, you can see that they are really driven out through many mm -hmm. years and they can, yeah. can continue with you for a long period of time. And just as you said that, my mind was just, just yeah. thinking and thinking like, wow, this, it really makes sense because, you know, even if like when you were saying about how you were deciding uh, on a place to eat, it mm -hmm. can change the opposite way of you then being more considerate. And mm -hmm. it just really opened my eyes to think that, you know, you experience something such a, you know, negative traumatic experience where, you know, you felt like you were self-worthless, you, you didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And then due to that experience, you then wanted to change your mindset to making sure that everybody is always welcoming. It's always that they're going to be the first one. So you always put someone else first, even when you were always the last one mm -hmm. to really receive any type of support and right. help. And mm -hmm. to become aware of that, like you were saying, just creating yeah. that awareness as you go through it to find those habits is, is the first step. Because I think for a lot of people, especially today, they could go within 10 years and then they can start seeing that these trauma responses are happening and then mm -hmm. they can become aware of it. And for a lot of people, it becomes kind of just the, the daily habits that they can't become aware of. Right. And I, I think that... And, yeah, and where, where it becomes problematic is when you do what I did and end up sitting through several meals throughout your life in restaurants that you would never go to, eating foods that you would never eat, um, you know, just because you don't have the ability to speak up and advocate for yourself. Um, and I've done that before, just, you know, shut my mouth and end up at a restaurant going, oh, I would never eat this crap. But then, you know, you just kind of choke it down anyway. Um, and so that's really, really important to become aware of those patterned responses. And I know in there you mentioned like substance abuse and addiction. Um, when it comes to substance abuse and addiction, um, one thing that I would ask any client who has an issue with it is, what does it do for you? Because if the, the abuse of the substance, the, even if it's, it doesn't even have to be a substance abuse, it could be cutting, for example. What does cutting do for you? What does the substance, what does the alcohol, what does the drug, what does it give you? Because people don't just do drugs unless it gives them something. It usually gives them some sort of pleasure that they can't get or an escape that they can't normally get in their life because their life has become too emotionally painful for them to remain present for themselves in their own life. 
and a lot of times the substance helps to regulate the physiology temporarily and then the person can't regulate the physiology on their own so they keep returning back to the substance um, and um, recently I had on my podcast um, an implicit memory expert and she was revealing um, a study that they had done on a girl who was a cutter and they had you know tested her physiology, hooked her up to machines and tested her. And, you know, she was just like ang high anxiety. She went home that night and she ended up cutting. And when they saw her the next day, they tested her again and her physiology was right back down to normal again. So don't get me wrong. I am not advocating cutting. I'm just saying that the body is brilliant in how it learns to adapt. And then once the cutting, once you become tolerant of it, then you have to do something even more to be able to, to feel and get yourself. So that's where it, it's important to realize and get intervention um, and work with somebody who understands. Because if you're dealing with this level of trauma, I would highly recommend a somatic-based therapist because cognitive behavioral therapy is probably not going to cut it for you. Definitely, yeah. Thank you for that. Because it, mm -hmm. it seems like when, you know, when you're speaking about the substance abuse, it's always when you face uh, uh, an experience that causes this pain that you want to suppress. It's obviously the first experience that someone goes through. They're saying, "All right, the first the first answer really is going to be something that's going to suppress this pain. Whether it's taking a substance, whether it's cutting themselves, there's a, a feeling of you know ecstasy that they want to have that necessarily will bring them out of that headspace and that mindset of you know facing that reality and it becomes that dependence that it in turn creates an even more negative approach i mean that's why we see mm -hmm. so many people overdosing today that's why we see so many people that are committing suicide and mm -hmm ending their lives because they necessarily are always seeking the, the next, the next, you know, suppress the next level that they can reach in order to not, not feel the experience that they had originally for someone that's been into that, um, you know, their own treatment process that they see it as of using a substance or, or trying to, cause and inflict pain within themselves how how can someone try to change their physiology while trying to mentally cope with that because there definitely has to be a multiple level approach to that because they can't necessarily just end using substances or end cutting themselves mm -hmm. to really right. try face this issue because in turn physiology they might have some horrible repercussions due to uh, a complete uh you know stoppage to this this harm that they're causing themselves mm -hmm. um i i think for each person that's going to be different depending upon uh what the the behavior or the habit is um for for a lot of substances um rehabilitation is you know some sort of rehab facility so some so they can detox and withdraw in a safe setting um, might be warranted depending upon what the substance is. Um, and whenever you get out of the treatment facility, um, because a lot of people come out like really, really um, convicted that I'm not gonna do this again, I'm gonna stay clean. And what's really important in my humble opinion is to change your environment. Um, because it's the environment that leads people into substance abuse 
in the first place. So if you get out of a treatment facility and you go right back into the same home, you have the same exact friends, you're in the same exact neighborhood and you're doing the same stuff over and over and over again, um, isn't that the definition of insanity to do the same things over and over again and expect a different result? Um, you might want to change your environment. You might want to consider like, okay, do you have a relative somewhere else in the country where you can go stay and get a new start? Or is it possible not to hang out with the same friends and find new friends, go to different places, go to different meetings? Um, so that's an important aspect of it is changing your environment. Um, and there is a lot of truth to um, looking at the five people that you hang out with the most and really step back and assess their, um, their actions, their behaviors, their words, their qualities, their characteristics. And do you like what you see? Um, because if not, you might wanna think twice about who you're hanging out with, and that includes family. Um, because you are the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And is that what you want to be when you stand back and you look at those five people? Um, so it, it's taking personal responsibility for yourself and not just wanting change in your life, but being willing to change in order to accomplish the change that you want. Um, now, when it comes to cutting, um, stuff like that, uh, I would definitely recommend finding a therapist, finding someone to work with. Um, and it, it depends on the severity. Um, for early childhood trauma, and if you've lived through early childhood issues like pre eight years old and you had a lot of abuse and trauma in your life, I would recommend a somatic-based therapist because a lot of that trauma just really gets imprinted into the cellular memory and into the nervous system of the body. So it becomes habit, it becomes your reactive behaviors. And these are the things that we just write off as normal. We write them off as, oh, that's just a behavioral quirk, or that's just part of his personality, that's just who she is. Um, and we write it off as if somebody else's poor behavior is perfectly acceptable. It doesn't have to be acceptable because a lot of those quirky behaviors and personality characteristics are trauma patterned responses that we've just kept because we've never taken a, a step back to examine our own behaviors or our own beliefs. That's great. I, I, love, mm -hmm. I love those tips. I think those are definitely great ways that someone can take the first steps in order to really try to bring around a great environment and get the first-hand resources. In terms of the substance abuse, I love the environment aspect because I've seen it a lot throughout. Where I grew up, there was a lot of substance abuse, a lot of issues within that field, a lot of people overdosing. And if someone comes back to that environment, that hometown, they know exactly who to get the drugs from. They know exactly where to go. And changing the environment is step one. My good friend, Matthew Ray, his family, actually offered him the basically the you know the the answer to his to his problem which was you know you've been through rehab five times we're either going to move or you're going to stay here and be homeless so they mm -hmm. basically said we're picking up we're moving our whole family we're changing the environment for you we're making a step for you yeah. now it's up to you now it's up to your choice and now he's four years sober doing incredible. So it's, mm -hmm. it's that change in environment, exactly what you're saying. Like that's living proof of you need, you need to change who you're around, who you're surrounding yourselves with, you know, the hobbies that you have. There's, there's so many 
so many things at stake in the environments that you experience, you know, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's, you know, a traumatic experience, being back into those places can cause, can trigger different instances and they can cause more harm and cause you to just lead back to a lot of past experiences that necessarily you, you won't be able to come out of. And in terms of the, um, you know, the mental health aspect, aspect of it, you know, you talked about the, the self-belief and the self-doubt. And I've been reading a book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and he speaks about the two different systems of the brain. So the fast thinking and the slow thinking, and the mm -hmm. fast thinking being, you know, the one that's always the, the quick trigger of knowing, you know, two plus two equals four and knowing when you see someone, the representation or the characteristics that you can cause from them. So the, the quick, fast thinking, those, the self-belief and self-doubt. And that, that brings up the instance of, you know, when someone experiences a traumatic issue, they create and it becomes ingrained into their mind. One offer that I believe a lot of people are using today is these positive affirmations, positive self-talk. For someone who's experienced a traumatic issue, whether it's working with a therapist or working with themselves, how can positive self-talk benefit someone and how can it change the way that they perceive themselves and maybe perceive the experience that they had? Depends. <laughs> it depends on where you are in your process. Um, so if you're in a process where you are suffering miserably and horribly inside yourself, positive affirmations are going to be patronizing and they're going to do zero good whatsoever. Um, because that's, that's what I call spiritual hijacking, where you convince yourself that, okay, I'm not really experiencing fear right now. I'm not really experiencing this anger and rage that's bubbling up. I'm just going to positively affirm my way out of it. So what, what they've proven, um, and there are books written about this. One, one of the, the big ones is Bessel van der Kolk. Um, he wrote The Body Keeps the Score, and he's really, really huge in somatic-based therapies with the research and the work that he's done. Um, he worked... Um, or, or there's a woman named Janina Fisher that worked alongside him for a while. And she wrote a book called um, The Fragmented Selves of Trauma Survivors, um, because it is true that our personalities fragment whenever we experience an, a traumatic event. And again, the trauma is what happens inside of you. And trauma is anything that limits your or constricts your response to a similar event in the future. So it reduces the possibilities of how you can respond. Um, so whenever our parts of our um, personality fragment, the parts that we learned as a child are not acceptable become points of shame. So we do everything we possibly can to hide them and stuff them down. So if that anger is a point of shame for you and you're positively affirming it away, you are doing to yourself exactly what your parents did to you as a child and you are neglecting yourself and you're abusing that aspect of yourself. It's not about positively affirming it away. It's about getting to the root of it. And first of all, you have to get beyond the story you tell yourself because usually there's a story we tell ourselves. The story I told myself was that I was a kind and considerate person. I wasn't willing to get to the truth that that kindness and consideration, that story that I told was born out of trauma. 
Um, and now that I've gotten to the root of it, I can respond, I can speak up and say, no, I don't want to go to a sushi restaurant because I don't eat fish, um, <laughs> which I have. I've sat through meals eating sushi when I don't eat fish. <laughs> and um, so there, um, so I don't have to put myself through that anymore because that was a form of self-abuse in order to people please other people. So um, I can bring that back into balance and I can still be kind and considerate, but I can still advocate for myself. So that's why I say it depends. Now, if you're in, if you're not that far down the rabbit hole of trauma to where you're suffering miserably, um, if you're a little further up and you, and you just have like bad days here and there, positive affirmations could really be a good way out of positive affirmations. So it really depends on who the person is and what they're dealing with. And this is exactly why when I work with clients, I never use protocols until I get to know my client a little bit more. Once I get to know my client, what I'm really dealing with, that will determine what tools I pull out of my toolbox to work with that particular client because everybody is so vastly different in how they internalize past traumas and how they respond and react to it. So what I recommend for people is to start to gain awareness of your own patterns. When are those moments when you notice that voice in your head, in the back of your head, that's just going and you're, you're, you're off, you're running your mouth and you're saying, uh, gosh, here I go again. I swore I was never going to get wrapped up in this argument with my, my girlfriend, Brendan, what are you doing? Or I swore I wasn't going to yell at my roommate like this anymore. Or I swore I wasn't going to talk to my parents like this anymore. Meanwhile, this voice is going, Brendan, what are you doing? I thought you said you weren't going to do this. And there you go doing it. That's your implicit memory, which is your tissue memory taking over while you have awareness. And have you had that experience? Does that sound familiar to you at all? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So pay attention to your awareness. So when you get that awareness, stop yourself. And you might look like a ding dong and that's okay. When you get that awareness, just stop dead in your tracks, interrupt the process and, and do what you need to do to put a little bit of space between the awareness and the response. So it doesn't have to be, when, it, when you're reactionary, it's like this, there is no space at all. It's like event and reaction, it doesn't matter. There's no thought. If you can stop yourself and put just a little bit of space in there, then you can start to have a response rather than a reaction and you can slow yourself down. And um, one of my favorite ways to teach people to slow themselves down is through, um, I'm, I'm a certified um, coach mentor through the HeartMath program, the HeartMath organizations in California. And they teach several breathing techniques and their breathing techniques will, like I'm amazed they bring the body back into a state of coherence and balance in no time flat as long as you practice them because they only work if you use them. And um, I first heard about the heart math techniques through people like, um, and let me know if you've heard of these guys, Dr. Bruce Lipton, um, Dr. Greg Braden, Joe Dispenza. Um, they're all heart math trained um, kind of celebrities in, in the world of what they do, you know, with quantum physics and metaphysics and trauma and human history. And um, that's where I first heard of the heart math techniques and what kind of prompted me into um, becoming a coach. And I'm just blown away by how quickly these breathing techniques work. That's awesome. No, it's something mm -hmm. that I've understood as I've performed uh, meditation. I've, I try to do it really daily, whether it's, you know, five minutes or 30 minutes, just trying to get that time to to mm -hmm. perform those breathing exercises, it really centers yourself and mm -hmm. makes you understand, you know, 
how you interact with people. I think that's the one big thing of, you know, when you said that of when you started becoming aware and that's something that I have mm -hmm. is as I communicate with people and how I interact, how I am kind, how I necessarily am say angry or mean to some people and how I'm reactionary in a lot of those conversations, then, you know, sometimes you pick it up afterwards and you're saying, all right, you know, next time this is when I need to improve. But it's, mm -hmm. I think creating that, that separation in order to, you know, think before you act, think before you speak, because then you can actually implement what you're truly aware and conscious of. Mm -hmm. It's also very related to uh, emotional intelligence. It's something mm -hmm. that is definitely huge and something that I've, you know, there's so much research going on today about it. And I think it's so impactful to understand how you interact, especially within different environments, I, you know, how your emotions come into play, how they happen due to events with other people. You know, can you speak about how, whether it's environments change our emotions, um, but as well, you know, just why the process of becoming aware of our emotional thinking and learning can play such a vital role, you know, in our mental health, really. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, emotions are incredibly important to all of us. Um, I think emotions are one of the most important things that we ignore in our normal daily lives. We suppress them, we repress them, we shame people for experiencing them, and they're the one thing that makes us human. Um, not the one, but one of the main things that makes us human. And they're incredibly important, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Um, so it's really unfortunate that we have minimized emotions. So one of the first things um, I would recommend people get familiar with is separating the emotion from the sensation from the story we tell ourselves. And every day when I have clients in my office, I go through this process and it doesn't matter how seasoned you are, I've been doing this work for a while and I still get tripped up myself. Um, so it's a lifelong process. So I don't want anyone to think that you're just magically perfect at this because none of us are. It's a lifelong journey, whether you've experienced trauma or not. Um, the story we tell ourselves. So let me give you an example of that. A client might come in my office and I might say, how, how are you feeling? Or what are you experiencing right now? Or tell me about something you know, that's activated in you or something that's upsetting you or bothering you. And the client, um, and, and this has happened more than once, you know, a client will come in and talk about an argument that they've had with, you know, a friend or a partner or a spouse or somebody. It's usually a loved one, somebody close to them. And I'll say, well, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel abandoned. I feel rejected. Um, rejected and abandoned, neither one of those are feelings. Those are the story you tell yourself. Is that the reality? So I will ask a person, how does your body experience the feeling of abandonment? Because I'm trying to get them to identify either a sensation or an emotion. So the, the abandonment is the story you tell yourself. It, it goes back to childhood where you perceive that you were abandoned or you perceive that you were reje rejected or you perceive that you were stupid. And then you took that on and you've carried that story throughout your whole life. 
So just because you had an argument with your husband last night because he was an hour late coming home from work and you didn't get to go to dinner because it was date night and you missed your date night, that doesn't necessarily mean he rejected you. It doesn't necessarily mean he abandoned you or anything like that. It could be that he got held up in traffic because there was a horrible accident and the highway was a parking lot for 40 minutes. Who knows? Um, it's getting to the bottom of the story. Did he really abandon you in that moment or is there another possibility? And getting back to the event in childhood that triggered it, like when is the first time you felt this? Um, and a lot of times whenever you get people to identify the sensation and you'll ask them, is this the first time you've ever felt this? No, it's not. I've felt this way my whole life. Well, when was the first time you felt it? A lot of times it just immediately takes them far back into childhood. And then you can start to get somewhere because then you can start to re-examine that childhood event with adult eyes and with your adult wisdom and looking at it from not through the lens of in my case, the five-year-old who got yelled at because I chose Long John Silver's and my dad's food was bad. I, I came to all these conclusions um, through my implicit memory, through, through the implicit memory of a five-year-old little girl, and I've carried them with me throughout my life. Um, it wasn't until I really stood back and re-examined them that I was able to change that belief and think, oh, okay, I don't have to be kind and considerate um, and mask that speaking up and saying that's not where I want to eat. Speaking up and advocating for myself doesn't mean that I'm going to hurt or harm somebody else, you know, in the process, which is kind of what I was led to believe. <laughs> so it, it's a matter of getting beyond the story and getting to the emotion or the sensation. And that is incredibly, incredibly important um, in, in order to heal and move past a lot of these patterns. Wonderful. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's, it's always a deep-rooted cause that someone needs to start to uncover. And, you know, we create, it's, it's so interesting that how complex the brain is because we create these stories, we create these, these doubts and these beliefs within ourselves that we necessarily can't come to terms with unless we speak about our emotions, unless we talk through it. Mm -hmm. That's why I think, you know, there's so, there's so much value in the therapy and the communication aspect of your emotions. I think a lot of times within people's relationships nowadays, it's always, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing good? And it's always just that, that common cycle of people saying, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I'm doing well. Oh, you know, mm -hmm. this is going on with my life or whatever, but it's not, when you sit down with somebody, it's not really like a, a deep rooted conversation of, you know, what's truly happening? What emotions are you truly feeling? And, you know, whether that's how you seek out with a therapist or not, it's truly so important to understand your emotions and, and where it's rooted, because like you're saying, it could go all the way back to your childhood. So it can, mm -hmm. it can be rooted from something that you don't even remember, but mm -hmm. that someone can start to peel back and bring and start to make you become aware of it. Yes. And our emotions are incredibly important. Um, because when we experience emotions, um, especially if it's a really big emotion, like if you get really angry, most people know what that feels like in the body. There's this heat that rises up that comes from your core and, you know, you sometimes flush and you just feel it through your whole body. Sometimes your face gets real hot. You start to get sweaty. You know, you, you tense up. Most people understand what that feels like. Well, when there's an emotion that big, there's a hormonal response and a huge release of cortisol happening in the body. So 
our emotional responses are directly tied in with our endocrine system. And then whenever the endocrine system gets out of balance, then that spills over and affects every other system in the body. Um, most immediately, the central nervous system, um, the cardiovascular system, and um, the respiratory system, um, because they're all tied in together with sympathetic activation. And the emotions are there to give us a warning. So anger is a call to action. Somebody has crossed a boundary or something. Somebody has violated you in some way. So it's time to reestablish a boundary. It's time to end that relationship and walk away. It's time to move on. It's time to reframe it or do something. It's a call to action. Um, fear is, you know, like, okay, let's do a little bit of orienting. Let's see what's going on here. You know, am I in danger? Am I not in danger? Um, so these emotions are there for a purpose. And whenever we experience joy and happiness and love and the positive emotions on the flip side, those are things that we want more of in our life because they help to balance our physiology and they help to, um, they help to rejuvenate our immune system and they rejuvenate the cells in our body the more we can experience those um, well, regenerative and renewing emotions versus the depleting and draining emotions. So if you really think about it, the emotions are trying to let good things into our life and keep bad things out. It's our response to the environment. Does that sound like another system in your body that tries to let the good things in and keep the bad things out? Exactly. Sounds like your immune system because our emotions are, immu are the immune system for our psyche and how stupid of us as an entire population to stuff and repress our emotions and not pay attention to them because when you do not have a healthy emotional state, you do not have a healthy autoimmune system in your body. You just don't. It, it shows you how connected and linked our, our body, our mind is together. It's, it's really it something is. that we need to, you know, always be aware of. And that's the one topic that I think is, is being brought up today is, you know, there's the statistics that one in five people suffer from a mental health condition. And a lot of people are responding back saying, yes, but five in five people have mental health. Everybody mm -hmm. has mental health. Everybody needs right. to focus on and everybody needs to start mm -hmm. to learn about their emotions, understand them and, yes. and really unpack what's going on. And I think that's so valuable because mm -hmm. see a lot of people today that are saying, you know, oh, this person's suffering from, you know, this disease, this illness, mm -hmm. but I'm not. So I don't necessarily need to focus on my emotions or I don't need to exercise or I don't necessarily need to focus on my nutrition. But mm -hmm. It's, it's an ongoing process and each day, you know, if you do want to get better and you do want to feel correctly, you want to feel healthy, you want to feel as best as you can, you need to be focusing on these day to day and you can't, you can't stop and right. think that everything's just, your body's going to feel better and your mind's going to be in a whole different place. You know, it's, it's all interconnected and it's something yep. we need to really take control of each day, which I think a lot of people, you know, think it's all disconnected and, and they don't really play a part into each other. Right. Well, the, the gut um, produces roughly somewhere between 70 and 80% of the dopamine and serotonin in the body anyway. So it's true that the food you eat has a direct effect on your mood. And uh, a lot of people don't believe that. They don't care. Um, it's also true that exercise has a direct effect on your mood um, because 
implicit memory, somatic-based therapies, one of the best ways to work through trauma that has affected your implicit memory that is stored in your cellular memory is through movement, some sort of movement therapy, some sort of somatic-based therapy where you learn to be present with yourself. So that's why so many people, um, once they start to exercise, they'll notice that they have this burst of energy. They start to feel good about themselves. They don't really know why, um, but on some level, just the movement is working that trauma that's been stored in their body out of their system and they start to feel good. And then when you start to feel good and you start to care about yourself, you start to um, watch these feelings of I'm not good enough and I'm not smart enough or I'm unlovable. When those feelings start to go away or those old um, stories that you tell ourselves, yourself and those old beliefs start to go away, then you start to care about yourself self enough that you want to take care of yourself. So you look at the potato chips and you're like, that's not really good for me. Um, I know the research, I know what it says. <laughs> so we know what we need to do to take care of ourselves. For most people, um, we just don't care enough about ourselves to do it. And so what you put out into the world is a reflection of how you feel about yourself. Definitely, I, I love that insight. Mm. I think that's a great perspective and how people need to come to terms in order, you know, self-care is truly a very important task in, you know, your health altogether. That's something that, that I learned is, you know, you, you can't help other people before you help yourself. And it's a recurring topic through, you know, anybody's experiences. You know, you are first and foremost, you can't work, you can't connect with others, you can't do most most activities, most hobbies without really being a healthy individual and focusing on taking care of yourself, which I think is, mm -hmm. is first and foremost. Yeah. And I, I think this leads to a, a good transition into a different type of way someone seeks therapy mm -hmm. and that being psychedelic therapy. So mm -hmm. psychedelic therapy being a way that someone is changing their mindset and their perspective based off of using a substance which is psilocybin or other types of plant-based uh, therapies that can offer a, a different insight, a different perspective into maybe a trauma that you faced or just the, the place that you're in, the environment that you're in, and maybe what steps you can move forward. So can you speak about psychedelic therapy and, and we'll speak more about, you know, the misconceptions and, and really how, how it's transforming and improving uh, a lot of people's lives throughout society today. But first, if you want to just allow the audience to understand more about what it is and we'll dive deeper into, into the topic. Right. Yeah. So I have done psychedelic assisted psychotherapy sessions. Um, it's not the same thing as recreational use. And after going through my experiences, I'm more against recreational use now than I've ever been um, because so much recreational use is just mis misguided. Set and setting is incredibly important. And by set, that refers to mindset. Um, so, so often when people use psychedelics recreationally, that is not the appropriate mindset to set up a healing environment. Um, so if you're at a rave and you're doing psychedelics, um, you're opening a portal to your subconscious um, for your subconscious to be affected by everything in the environment around you. And so all the people at the rave that you could encounter, all the music, everything that's going on, is that really what you want to alter your mindset? 
Probably not. <laughs> um, or whatever other scenario, festivals or whatever. Um, so I'm not a big fan of that. Um, so with my psychedelic treatments, um, the, and, and just to be clear so people know, um, I've done several sessions. And with my sessions, I did a very similar protocol to the FDA clinical trials. Now, I want to be clear, I was not part of the FDA clinical trials, but after reading the research and the results they were getting from the clinical trials, I talked to my facilitator and I did three sessions about a month apart of MDMA. Um, the street name for MDMA is ecstasy. Now, if you buy it on the street, who knows what's going to be in it? Um, because it's probably not pure and you might not get MDMA in it at all. Um, so I was doing a pharmaceutical grade MDMA. And the very first thing I noticed um, was the MDMA under the right guidance. And I did months of preparation, um, you know, like a lot of writing and a lot of assignments that I had to do leading up to this. So this was not something I took lightly and I just kind of went into going, woohoo, I'm going to, you know, go flying high. Nothing like that at all. So the MDMA gave me um, anchor points in my body for, felt, for the felt sense of experiences that I'd never had. So for example, my, most of my life, I had an intellectual understanding of gratitude. And this finally opened my eyes to why a gratitude practice never worked for me. Because I would get up and I would do my gratitude journal and I would stick with it for weeks and sometimes months and nothing would ever change. So I just felt like I was broken beyond repair. Well, my trauma goes back to when my mother was pregnant with me because my mother was beaten you know, and abused while she was pregnant. And that does translate, the baby experiences that as well. It's not just the mother, that all gets transmitted to the child. So my abuse started before I ever came out of the womb and before I was, you know what I mean? Before I was ever ready to exist in air. So my body did not know how to experience anything other than the constriction that comes with fear and constant survival mode. I was in survival mode most of my life. So when I finally had MDMA and that took effect, and I, I don't know how I knew, but I just knew, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what gratitude feels like to experience it. I'm like, I'm not just understanding it intellectually, I'm really experiencing it. And the experience imprinted on my central nervous system and it gives it gave me an anchor point so now when i do my meditations or i do my daily practices i have access to these feelings that people told me about and i didn't understand before so the mdma really gave me the felt sense of some of these positive regenerative renewing emotions that i didn't fully understand before because i had never experienced them um, I, I also did a psilocybin treatment, which psilocybin is the fancy name for mushrooms, magic mushrooms. And I witnessed my ego breakdown. Like I just watched it kind of dissolve, dissolve and disintegrate. And um, in that session, there was one point where I remember <laughs> telling my facilitator I felt really annoyed because I felt like my ego had broken down and I still felt this attachment to my physical body and I just wanted to cut it. <laughs> like I didn't want that attachment anymore. And um, so, it, and it was, it was quite a lovely feeling, but at the end of that session, I came back to myself. But when I came back to myself, it was like this shell that everybody else who had created me, because the me that 
and the life that I was living at that point was not me. It was the me that everybody else in my world created. It was the me that my parents created, that my friends created. The, the yes person in me that would agree to anything regardless of whether I wanted to or not, um, that dysfunction created this false persona that wasn't truly me. So I was finally able to pick up my life and move on in a more authentic way, being who I want to be, not who I want, not who I thought other people wanted me to be. Because it wasn't really what other people wanted, it was who I thought other people wanted me to be. And that's where we get stuck in a loop too in life, <laughs> especially when we're dealing with trauma. Um, and then I also, um, at the tail end of a couple of my sessions, had 5-MeO DMT. And that was really a life changer. That was a game changer for me because the 5-MeO DMT um, was my first experience of, um, for lack of a better way to put it, this is how I've referred to it ever since that session, is experiencing my own divinity. Um, divinity is not something that's out there in the world. You don't find it going to a church. You don't find it you know, going to a certain you know, sacred site or sacred ground or anything like that, you find divinity within yourself. And it helped me find that. And again, several times since then, I have been able to reconnect with that divinity that lives within me. Um, I hate, hesitate to use the term God because that whatever that was that I experienced was not God as I was taught to understand it. Whatever I experienced transcended any concept that I ever had of God from church or religion or anything like that this was not that definitely yeah thank you for that and I, there's there's definitely a lot that i want to uh uh speak about and and share more about in terms of what you talk about so obviously first and foremost that it is something that should be therapeutic it should be under medicinal under therapeutic terms it should be under supervision of clinical people doing a study or performing a psychotherapy session upon you. So it should not be something recreational. And obviously you spoke about the intention. I think that's most important. It's you're using it to gain and access something better out of yourself from it. And it's not necessarily just used as a substance to, you know, feel a high. So that's definitely something that you know, needs to be said because I think mm -hmm. you know, with a lot of the research and studies going about today, a lot of people are characterizing it strictly as, you know, a recreational substance that people are abusing. But through a lot of these studies and really what only the studies have been today is medicinal purposes, is therapeutic purposes for you know, things such as a traumatic experience, such as mental health conditions, which is definitely something that is only what these, um, you know, therapy measures are going to be used for and what they should be used for. But they've been proven to have substantial benefits within, you know, PTSD, depression, um, and, and many other uh, issues that people face. Yeah. Psychedelics um, in general are not addictive. That is a myth and that's propaganda that we have been fed. Um, it, it's not the same thing as heroin or nicotine or alcohol, which are highly addictive substances. Um, psychedelics aren't addictive. Um, and 
you, you don't generally get people, even with recreational use, um, it is few and far between that you see a daily user of psychedelics. Um, I, I don't, I've met several people in my life who have used psychedelics recreationally at some point. You know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties. So of course I've met a lot of people in my life who've tried them. And um, whether they talk about it or not, um, it's not something they do every weekend. It's not something they do on a regular basis. Um, I think if you meet a regular user, it is few and far between because even with recreational use, we have this deep, deep instinctual knowing that we're in for something. Um, and and it's, it's because I think that we're just kind of hardwired on that instinctual gut level to know that these can be beneficial to us. And why it's important to do the work and set an intention is to be ready. That way you know you're ready and you're asking for parts of yourself to show up that you're ready to heal. And there might be parts of you that you're not ready to heal and that you're not ready to show up. And if you end up doing recreational use and you have a quote bad trip, um, that could just mean that you didn't set an intention, you weren't prepared and whatever decided to eke up at the time is what eked up at the time. So it takes that level of um, consciousness, conscious awareness of this is what I want answers for. And you can do that. You can learn to ask yourself, okay, this is what I want to work on right now. And that will come up for you. Um, and all of my treatments, I didn't say this and I should have, and all of my treatments, there was an element of shamanic ceremony thrown in, um, you know, where we opened the session. And even, even so, even though it was um, psychedelic psychotherapy, um, it was, there was still this element of ritual and ceremony thrown into it because ritual and ceremony is incredibly important. And what we're realizing in somatic-based therapies, and it's starting to you know, filter into the Western world, is how important shamanic practices are, and they're starting to resurface because they're so darned effective. I mean, it might sound silly to go find your power animal, but I tell you what, when you find your power animal, it's powerful when you connect with that in and it really is. It's it's something that that just it changes things for you. It really does. It sounds silly on the surface, but until you experience it, you won't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Definitely. And and when you're speaking about these uh, mm -hmm. you know traditions and you know these rituals, it's something that's been used within psychedelics for thousands of years. I mean, mm -hmm. and when we look at it too, it's not like psychedelics are these new and upcoming drug that's you know just happening today. It's something that's been used ritually for, for thousands mm -hmm. of years. And every, every different substance has been used, whether it's psilocybin, mm -hmm. DMT and such. And, you know, when you're speaking about your divinity, it, you know, sparked, um, you know, some insight within my brain. And what I, what I know about DMT is, you know, cause DMT is an active chemical that's within humans. It's mm -hmm. your brain. And yeah. I, the one thing of why, DMT can be used as a powerful, um, you know, substance to really, to hit, to hit that divinity, to hit that point where you, you really feel, you know, that, that third, that third body perspective, you know, you feel outside your body, you feel like you're, you're reaching that, that, that level that you necessarily can't on a surface level being grounded. And, that as well can be triggered through a near-death experience. So mm -hmm. through a near-death experience, when you're about to die, 
DMT is actually like pulsated and there's increased levels when you're about to die. And mm-hmm. that causes, you know, I think another availability of maybe that divinity of maybe that, you know, out of body experience right before mm-hmm. your death. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's, you know, how DMT can be used because it offers, I think, that change in perspective. It offers that availability to become outside yourself in order to see that maybe what you went through or what you're currently going through can offer some sort of peace, some change in perspective, and some, say, structure and order uh, within your life that I think a lot of times some people can't necessarily go without, but it has to be done strategically and in a correct way. So, you know, like you're saying is you, you need to have that attention beforehand and it can't be something that you say, all right, I'm going to get this question answered out of it and I'm going to do it tomorrow. You know, like you said, it's got to be a process of mm-hmm. whether it's a month or three months, you have to be working, you have to first get knowledgeable about what you're about to use because you can't just walk into a a ritual ceremony and say all right i'm gonna take Mm -hmm. i'm gonna take mushrooms i'm gonna take ayahuasca i'm gonna you know do dmt there's there's so many things that you need to become informed about before and the process in and of itself is is a, a is a really i mean it's a it's a drooling process that you need to spend a lot of time in and it's it's obviously still being researched countlessly today but i think the benefits the opportunities that can come out of psychedelic you know assisted therapies are you know exponential for a lot of people but for some people like you said you know they can't experience a, a bad trip per se and for some people if it's not evaluated correctly and they use it recreationally a lot of people have been having you know per se the psychotic breaks or it's been changing the way that their brain necessarily you know interacts throughout day-to-day uh habits and it can completely change the way that they see their their Mm -hmm. self so i i know that necessarily there isn't too much research about it but you know obviously to debunk the the pros and cons there definitely is some negative approaches to some people that can experience it but through a lot of the um assisted research you know has there really been any any painful or or harmful causes that have been to date i don't believe that there's anything that has caused you know whether it's say an overdose or whether say someone lead led themselves to you know uh any type of, you know, harmful situation to themselves. I I don't believe there's any recorded data upon that. Mm -mm. Um, They're showing such good results that um, MDMA and psilocybin both are likely to be legalized in the United States and Canada within the next two years um, because they're currently in phase three clinical trials and that's the last hurdle to get get past. in previous clinical trials, um, there, there's a TED talk by um, a, a guy by the name of Brad Berg, B-U-R-G-E, and he, um, I don't know what his position is, but he works for MAPS. Um, MAPS is assisting with the clinical trials, and it's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. In his TED talk, um, he talks about um, the three sessions of MDMA 
about a month apart in the results that they're getting. So after one session, just a single session, people with PTSD, um, about 20% of them were no longer diagnosable with PTSD. That's not just a reduction in symptoms. That is no longer showing signs or symptoms, no longer diagnosable, which is phenomenal for any research study. And whenever you add three sessions about a month apart, that number jumps to just over 60%. And when you continue to follow the participants around for a year afterwards, they continue to get better. And that number jumps to like, I think it was 68%, so closer to 70. Um, so the results are phenomenal. And in one of the clinical trials, they decided to stop the clinical trial in the middle of it because ethically, they couldn't continue not giving the control group the psychedelics because of the results they were seeing with the, the group that was getting them, because it just felt unethical not to give it to the control group. So they did abandon one of the studies for that reason, because the results were just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and it, it's something that can help a lot of people. Now, psychedelics are not for everybody. Um, it, there are certain contraindications, so that's why it is important to do your research, to talk to a doctor. Um, and whenever this does go legal, um, this is my understanding. Now, how it's actually going to happen, um, I'm not 100% sure, but I do know in Canada they have a couple treatment centers that have, um, I don't know what type of license it is, but they, they were able to get a license where they can start opening treatment centers um, prior to actual legalization. And I know that there's one, um, I know one in particular that's going in and um, just because I have a friend who lives in that area. And in this treatment center, um, what will happen is you'll have to get a prescription from your medical doctor, and your medical doctor will refer you to the treatment center or to a psychotherapist who is able to assist this type of session. Um, so you'll be sent from one professional to another professional. There will be two therapists in the office with you um, for your day-long session. Um, you'll do sessions like pre-sessions leading up to it. You'll do post-sessions afterwards. So it's not just showing up one day and doing a psychedelic and then not having any guidance afterwards. It's nothing like that at all. And um, you won't be able to go to a pharmacy and get a prescription and take this home and go do it yourself. Um, so you'll have to do your treatments at a treatment center. Um, which is how chemotherapy is done. <laughs> like you don't go to the pharmacy and get your chemotherapy and take it home and administer your own cancer treatments. You go to treatment centers for things like that if that's the route you choose to take. Um, so again, know your contraindications, work with your, um, work with your professionals because when this becomes legal, this really has the capacity to be a game changer for um, mental health. And um, you know, and, and I, I wish we would stop talking about mental health disorders and, um, you know, diagnoses because really none of them are disorders. They're all um, natural coping behaviors. And sometimes they get a little too far out of control because with anything in life, you're going to have the fat part of your bell curve. But then the further you go out, you're going to have your standard deviations that are too far from normal that become your exceptions. You're always going to have a similar distribution to your bell curve if you learned anything about that in school and statistics. <laughs> You're always going to have that. So we're always going to have exceptions on both ends. Um, and you know, again, look at the contraindications. Look at look at what works for you, and look at your belief system. It's, if it's not something you believe in, fine, don't do it. But don't hold other people back from healing because of your limited belief in something that you're not, you know that you don't want to do for yourself. That's not your choice to make for other people.
Wonderful. Thank you, Jennifer. I, I really appreciate mm -hmm. that insight. And you know, before we end this, I just want to express my gratitude for all the information that you've really allowed uh, my audience to hear thus far. It's it's truly been a pleasure to speak with you and mm -hmm. just tap into a little bit, a little glimpse into what you truly know and what you truly are offering, the resources that you're providing for people there today, and the sincere impact that you're making within the mental health field. It's, it's remarkable, and it's honestly such a pleasure that we've connected thus far, and I really look forward to continuing this connection and really moving forward, continuing the collaboration, because I think you have a lot of insight to share and you have a lot of people to continue to touch. So I'm really grateful that you were able to make this work and be on this podcast because it truly was a pleasure. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here and thank you for letting me share with your listeners. Of course, it really was my pleasure. And you know, before we go, I have one last question that I love to ask my guests and it's, basically to wrap around uh, your life story within a book. So if you're writing a book, the question that I like to ask is if you were to characterize the past year or two that you've been experiencing, whether it was a certain lesson that you've uncovered, whether it's an experience that you've had, or whether it's a profound idea that you've you know, considered thus far, you know, what would the chapter of, you know, this past year or two been? And give us a quick glimpse as to, as to why that would be. Um, so you're asking me what a chapter would be in the book? <laughs> yeah. So if you're writing yeah. a book, yeah. What, okay. How could you uh, frame the past year or two? Or okay. Be yesterday. Yeah. I, I, I would frame the past um, few years in my life as, Question everything, especially your own belief system, because if you don't question your own beliefs and you don't test them and, and you really don't put them to the test in real life, what's the use of having them? Um, because there's no validity to them if you don't test them out and try them and question them. Um, so absolutely question your beliefs, get beyond the story that you tell yourself. Um, and when you start to question your beliefs, then you start to develop a habit of self-compassion because a lot of times our beliefs get in the way of our own self-compassion. Thank you so much for that, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. I love that response. Self-reflective questions is something that can definitely offer insight throughout each day. I really appreciate your insight and mm -hmm. I look forward to speaking with you soon and having my audience listen to this wonderful episode. So thank you for being here today. It truly was mm -hmm. a pleasure, Jennifer. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Brendan.